Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Freedom fighter, activist, teacher, storyteller, human rights and reproductive justice educator, Loretta Ross is our conversation partner on this podcast. I have known Loretta since her work with Reverend C.T. Vivian at the Center for Democratic Renewal in Atlanta. And Loretta has done so much more movement work fighting white supremacy, patriarchal violence, and systems of domination. Another organization we want to highlight, Loretta was a founder and then national coordinator of Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. She is a prolific author. For example, the book Reproductive Justice and Introduction from 2017 with Ricky Sullinger, Radical Reproductive Justice, Foundation Theory, Practice, Critique, The Color of Choice, White Supremacy and Reproductive Justice, an article in the Insight Anthology, Color of Violence, the book Undivided Rights, Women of Color, Organizing for Reproductive Justice. And I need to mention her senior thesis for her Bachelor of Arts in Women's Studies at Agnes Scott College, Just Choices, Women of Color, Reproductive Health and Human Rights. Her forthcoming book is Calling In the Calling Out Culture, due out in 2023. In her writing and teaching, Loretta disrupts binary thinking and actions, in particular pro-choice, pro-life, and calling in and cancel culture with an intersectional approach. In October 2022, Ross was named a MacArthur Fellow for her work as an advocate for reproductive justice and human rights in, quote, shaping a visionary paradigm linking social justice, human rights, and reproductive justice. The MacArthur website quotes Loretta, activism has been the art of making my life matter. On her office door at Smith College is a sign, we were made for these times. Both of these quotes are examples of how Loretta teaches in the current political moment and in the movements for systemic social change. So congratulations to Loretta on her MacArthur Genius Award. Loretta has taught both inside and outside the university as a founder of the National Center for Human Rights Education, as program director for the National Black Women's Health Project, director of the Women of Color Project, co-director of the 2004 March for Women's Lives, and at Hampshire College, Arizona State University, and now is an associate professor in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender at Smith College. In an article in the book, Black Women's Liberatory Pedagogies on Teaching Reproductive Justice, Loretta describes the work of Sister Song. Quote, our pedagogical praxis was embedded in analyzing and eliminating historical silences and contemporary social inequities that prevent people from living fully realized, self-determining, reproductive lives. For the reproductive justice movement, a radical pedagogical approach is required for bodily empowerment and community self-determination beyond the pro-choice, pro-life binary." We are thrilled to be able to talk to Loretta about her reproductive justice pedagogy and framework grounded in social justice, human rights, struggle, 
embodiment, passion, politics, freedom, hope, systemic transformation, and joy. Welcome, Loretta Ross, to Nothing Never Happens. Lucia, do you want to ask the first question? Sure. Um, and I will just start with a, a question that will maybe help um, listeners get to know you a little bit beyond the introduction. Will you tell us a story about your experience as a teacher or learner, educator, in whatever context, doesn't necessarily have to be in a traditional schooling context, that has informed some of the work you are doing currently and has shaped you um, in your own teaching and learning practice? Well, when I retired from Sister Song in 2012 as their national coordinator, I kind of formally ended the activist part of my life, meaning running nonprofits, trying to organize, lobby, do all those kinds of things. And I wrote a sticky to myself, a post-it note saying, I, what did I want to do with the last third of my life? Because I was 62 years old at the time. And I knew I didn't have a lot of years left, but I wanted to spend them doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I told myself I wanted to teach, talk, and write. That's what I wrote on the sticky. But I didn't know how any of that was going to happen. And so the writing part, I immediately began. And that's when I co-wrote the two books on reproductive justice, Radical Reproductive Justice and Reproductive Justice and Introduction with a great set of co-writers. It was a great process to issue those two books. But at the talking part, I was doing anyway because I was invited to speak at different events and universities and stuff as I'd been doing for 40 years. But the teaching part, I went to, when I graduated Agnes Scott, I went to Emory University to get a PhD in women's studies. And I was not a successful PhD candidate. <laughs> uh, first of all, I didn't like the esoteric nature of feminist theory because it felt so divorced from the feminist activism that I'd done. I mean, it was just so up there in the ether and bore very re little relationship to the lives of women that I had worked with. And particularly, it had very little relationship to the women's movement I'd been a part of for over 40 years at the time. Like uh, our organizations aren't neatly slotted into being liberal feminist or socialist feminist or all this stuff. We have a little bit of all of that within our ranks because it depends on the necessities of the moment. Anyway, so that was my first problem with my PhD program that I wasn't reading the stuff that excited me. And I thought as a feminist, I should be excited by reading about women's literature and studies and stuff. And it just wasn't doing it for me. But the primary problem was financial. They gave me a full scholarship, so I didn't have any student loan debt to worry about. But they require of all graduate students that we teach. And they only offered to pay, I think it was $16,000 to teach which in itself wasn't even a problem, except that they prohibited me from earning other outside income because they want you lock, stock, and barrel 
Well, I had grown way beyond the ability to live off of $16,000 a year. I'm not sure who could live off of that. <laughs> and so I argued my case unsuccessfully that, I mean, they paid me that to come lecture at Emory University for an hour. <laughs> Why the hell would I take on a teaching load for, you know, for that level? And so there was a contradiction. My face is on posters in Emory telling me to come, telling people to come and hear me speak, but they want to hire me as a graduate student for less than they're paying me to give a speech. <laughs> graduate <laughs> students do their best intellectual work while they're hungry. I don't know. Uh, if, if, you know, unless you're a little bit deprived and have a leaky roof, it's hard to, it's hard to be an academic achiever. As a Yeah, it just didn't make sense. And I kept telling them, you know, I don't have parents I can rely upon. I'm in my 60s. My mortgage is more than you're, you're talking about paying me. And can't we negotiate something? And they were adamant that they that if they broke the rule for me, then they may end up with other graduate students having to listen to them. And so it just became a deal breaker for me. I, I was willing to do whatever they required, except live off of sub-minimum wages. <laughs> that just did not make sense. When I'm 60 and you know nearing Medicare and social security and stuff, sub-minimum wage is not what I had in mind. So I ended my Emory thing. And then I'm taking too long to tell this story, but uh, fortunately, a colleague of mine, Marlene Gerber Fried, was getting ready to go on sabbatical from her teaching job at Hampshire College. And she said, Well, Loretta, I've known you always wanted to teach. How about you substitute for me for my sabbatical year? And Hampshire agreed and you know, took me on and didn't pay me handsomely because that was Hampshire College. But at that point, it was twice what Emory was offering anyway. <laughs> and so that's what started my teaching career. And then I remembered some advice that Bell Hooks had given me because I had asked Bell one time why she was always a visiting professor at different places. And she said, because I have a home institution Berea College, but it allows me to teach part-time and write books in the other semester. And so she had a teaching semester and a writing semester, and that's how she had arranged her life. And that sounded pretty attractive to me. And so I, after I left Hampshire College, before I even left Hampshire College, Arizona State approached me about teaching there. So I relocated to Arizona. And while I was in Arizona, Smith contacted me about teaching there. So I came back to Massachusetts to teach at Smith. Two years at Smith, the president of the college decided she didn't want to let me go. So she shoehorned a tenure appointment through for me in my second year during COVID, as a matter of fact. And within a few less than six months, I had a tenure appointment at Smith. And so Smith became my permanent academic home. I should add that uh, Beth Hackett had contacted me about possibly teaching at Agnes Scott, and she was still trying to work out the details of that at the same time Smith had made its offer, but Smith 
beat her to the punch. And so that's why I'm at Smith and not at my alma mater, which I'd rather be at. Well, we would rather have you at Agnes Scott also, Loretta, that's for sure. Well, I want to shift gears a little and, and go back to when I first met you, which was very long time ago. You were working with Reverend C.T. Vivian at the Center for Democratic Renewal. And I knew you as an activist and a writer. I remember how well you wrote. That's, that's my memory from back then. And so the Center for Democratic Renewal, it, just such a, an important historic organization and, and grassroots movement. Um, uh, could you say something about what you learned there about anti-racist uh, education, public education and policy analysis and how it helped you bring those two together in your own teaching and activism? Well, the Center for Democratic Renewal was founded in 1979 after five anti-Klan protesters were murdered on videotape in North Carolina, and the murderers were never convicted. And Reverend Vivian and Braden and other co-founders thought it would be very necessary to start a monitoring organization in the civil rights movement that paid attention to the white supremacist movement. And this was two years before Morris Dees copied the idea and started the Southern Poverty Law Center in 1981. We were two years ahead of him. But anyway, they hired me in 1990 to become their program director. And my job was to help communities deal with the aftermath of hate violence. Like if there'd been a Klan march or some kind of hate violence take play, taking place. And I found in that work that there were generally three groups of white people when hate violence erupted. The first group generally was the largest group and they were the ones that didn't wanna pay attention to it. They wanted to just ignore it and it would go away and then they could get back to their normal lives. The second group, usually the smallest, were the ones who wanted to fight the hate, but they wanted to physically fight them, kind of like the anti-racist action kind of people. They wanted to punch a Nazi kind of thing. And that was not a good look because 200 anti-Klan protesters surrounding 12 Nazis is a big is, is, is a scenario designed to make like the hate groups look like the victims. And then the third group, the one that I was most drawn to, were the people of good conscience who didn't know what to do. They knew that ignoring the hate would not work, but also responding violently would not be the answer either. And it was that group of people that I coined the concept of appropriate whiteness because they knew that they needed to stand up against white supremacy, the ideology, but they didn't know how to use it, repurposing their white identity. And so there's such conflation between whiteness as an identity and white supremacy as an ideology that I realized within that work that these people didn't know how to be proud to be white. And white pride was only associated with the white supremacist movement. And yet when you're compelled to work with white people who are trying to fight white supremacy, you immediately get into this 
pool of guilt and paralysis because they're guilty about who they are and identity that they had no control over affirming for themselves or fixing to themselves. And then they kind of use the human rights movement as their personal therapy space, <laughs> which, which you know, diverts us from dealing with oppression. <laughs> and so that's one thing I learned at the Center for Democratic Renewal, that there had to be an on-ramp for white people working against white supremacy, the ideology, in a way that took advantage of that social construct called whiteness, as opposed to seeing it as a disadvantage in human rights and social justice work. And so that was one. The second thing that I'd bring to the policy table was that Georgia attempted to pass a hate crimes law while I was at CDR. And the Republicans, not operating in good faith, told us that if we would omit coverage for LGBTQ individuals, then they would agree to pass it for race-based and religious-based hate. And First of all, we didn't trust them because they lied through their teeth, as, as we say in the South. <laughs> you know? But secondly, it's never a good strategy to throw your own allies under the bus. The you know, queer community had been with us through all of our work on hate crimes. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to abandon them to appease our opponents. And I'd spent too much time criticizing the Democrats for doing that. So, of course, I wasn't going to fall for that okie doke, that bait and switch. And it is said that because we did not admit LGBTQ folks from the hate crimes bill, that that's why Georgia still doesn't have a hate crimes law. I call bullshit. We don't have a hate crimes law because the Republicans don't want a hate crimes law. <laughs> I'm not going to blame the victims for what the Republicans do. But I learned the strategic importance of not letting your opponents divide and conquer your base. Because they are not going to give you what you hope you're going to get after you've thrown your allies under the bus. And so that was an important policy understanding that I got. Because they were, as I said, not operating in good faith. They still would have voted against the hate crimes bill, but they would have successfully cleaved the uh, Human Rights Coalition, you know, on the case, on, on the question of LGBT rights. And that just didn't seem to make sense to me as a strategic, uh, you know, choice. And the last thing I'll say about Reverend Vivian in particular, because unfortunately he passed last year, is that he used to come to the office all the time and say that, if you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. And when he first told me that, I started muttering under my breath because you're not allowed to curse out a preacher. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? You know, if the Klan hates me as a black person, I'm all right with hating them back. I mean, what's wrong with that? But it wasn't until I started working with Leonard Zeskin and dealing with deprogramming people who've been in the white supremacist movement, that I understood what Reverend Vivian meant. 
because once you got to know people, it was very difficult to actually continue to hate them. And then I was kind of frustrated because if a black girl can't hate the Klan, I mean, who's left? <laughs> Your hate list gets really short after that. So I guess I'm left, I can always hate on mean people and I can always hate on hypocrites. But in terms of what people do and say, Oh, the list is very short. So those are probably three of the lessons I learned at the Center for Democratic Renewal. Wow, there's so much to dig into into there. So I'm like feeling torn about what to ask you, about what to ask you next. I think I'm gonna go with um, bringing questions about reproductive justice, um, which is a framework you've helped develop um, into this conversation conversation and then maybe we can like parse out some of the questions about political organizing and strategy and community building as once we have even more on the table. Um, so you have written this uh, really wonderful article in um, the collected volume Black Women's Liberatory Pedagogies um, and it's called Teaching Reproductive Justice and Activist Approach. Um, and we would love to hear you reflect a little bit about how you approach teaching reproductive justice. Um, what does your classroom look like, whether that's at Smith or whether that's at Hampshire or whether that's a community-based political education context? Um, how do you come into your teaching? And maybe a secondary or a related question to that is to talk to us about some of the theoretical frameworks that are, um, that you feel that you're like, standing on and bringing together and continuing in, in the work that you do around RJ? Well, reproductive justice was born in 1994, June of 1994, by 12 Black women, of which I was one, when we were problematizing healthcare reform. Because at the time, the Clinton administration conceived that if they omitted reproductive health care from health care reform, they could lessen Republican opposition to it. And this strategy didn't make any sense to us as the 12 Black women who were at this conference or Illinois Pro Alliance in Chicago. Because reproductive health care is the number one reason women first go to the doctor, unless they have some other pre existing health condition. But your feet up in the stirrups or your second on becoming a woman moment after your period. And so why would the Clinton administration come to a feminist conference and expect us to endorse a male-centric healthcare plan? That simply did not make any sense to us. And so then we started discussing what was wrong with the way that the pro-choice movement isolated abortion from all the other human rights concerns that take place in women's lives. I mean, if a woman is facing an unplanned pregnancy, before she decides whether she's gonna terminate the pregnancy or keep the baby, she's already wondering, well, can I stay in school? Can I keep my job? Will my partner beat me if I tell him I'm pregnant? Do I even have a bedroom to put this child in? I mean, all of those human rights issues contour the decision-making when you're dealing with an unplanned pregnancy. So if you have good answers to those human rights issues, you may turn an unplanned pregnancy into a wanted child. 
But if you have bad answers to those human rights issues, then you're gonna turn an unplanned pregnancy into an abortion if you can. And so both the pro-life and the pro-choice movement start with the pregnancy when in fact we as 12 black women thought that they should start further upstream with what was going on in the person's life before the pregnancy was known or arrived. And so we spliced together the concept of social justice to describe those issues that I just talked about with reproductive rights to create the term reproductive justice. And we did it originally just to answer the Clinton administration. And so we took out a full page ad in the Washington Post to get the attention of Congress talking about what black women wanted from healthcare reform. Probably no one was more surprised than me how popular the concept of reproductive justice grew from that. Because we didn't create it to challenge the pro-choice framework because if we had done that, we would have had to center white women in our lens instead of the black women we centered, <laughs> you know? We did it as a way to describe what we wanted from healthcare reform. But three years later, Sister Song was founded and Sister Song decided to make it its principal organizing framework. And from then on, it just exploded. We expected 200 people at our founding conference, got 600. When we test ran the concept of reproductive justice, it proved wildly popular. And so it took off from there. Now, reproductive justice theoretically was built on two other Black feminist frameworks. The one that was offered to us by the Kumbahi River Collective when they identified identity politics as a way of deciding who you are as a first step. And then the next step is to decide who you need to work in solidarity with in order to gain the power to change the conditions that oppress you because of your identity. And so that was a very important conceptual foundation for reproductive justice. So many people only get stuck at the identity politics at the identity level and they don't go to the solidarity level. And that's why so many identity uh, essentialist formations are problematic because they only want to work with and work in solidarity with people who share their own identity. They don't understand that uh, crossing identity solidarity. Then of course, Kimberly Crenshaw created intersectionality in 1989, she named it. Of course, she didn't create it. I mean, Black women have been talking about intersectionality since, uh, you know, Sojourner Truth said, ain't I a woman? <laughs> but still, naming something is as important as anything. I mean, Newton didn't invent gravity, but the world changed once he named it. So <laughs> we feel that I, intersectionality is one of those earth-shattering concepts as well. Now, a lot of people get intersectionality wrong because they think it's just a statement of identity, kind of like their misuse of identity politics. But intersectionality is actually a statement of vulnerability. Which of your identities create vulnerabilities for you that people who don't share your identities don't have to encounter? And so, the best way to explain it is through the human rights framework, which is the third conceptual uh, framework for reproductive justice, because it is a human rights-based framework. 
But one of the best ways I've found to explain it draws on my experiences running the National Center for Human Rights Education, because I had to do a lot of popular education on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, understanding that most people in the United States were totally unfamiliar with the human rights framework. And so if you accept that a child has a human right to an education, and at that point, generally everybody nods around the room because they can accept that, then would you accept that a blind child might need her books in Braille? That's where you use intersectionality to identify the special vulnerability that that blind child has that sighted children don't have that has to be attended to so that she can enjoy the same human right to education as sighted children. And so the way I see it in verbal shorthand is that intersectionality is our process, but human rights are our goal with reproductive justice. I'll ask a follow-up question to that, which is um, I one of the things that you you talk about in this this article I mentioned before is that reproductive justice offers a fuller, more expansive vision um, than some of the more mainstream uh, reproductive health care or lack thereof discourses. Um, a more expansive vision based on non-European philosophical traditions such as Ubuntu from Africa and Confucianism from China and you go on and sort of explain the various frameworks and I'm curious uh, if you could say more about the shift from um, sort of European slash Western liberal ideas about um, narrow property-based identity um, and to a more expansive human rights framework um, and how that informs how you come into come, come into your, your classroom um, in particular. The European philosophical approach to social order is very individualistically based. And we see that reflected in the pro-choice frame, you know, my body, my choice, keep your laws off my body. Uh, the government saying that it says an abortion is an individual choice that a woman makes and the government doesn't have to pay for that individual choice. So that individualized approach to protecting our bodily autonomy falls woefully short of what people need because if women as a class are not protected from reproductive oppression like the recent Dobbs decision showed us that we're not, then it really affects whether an individual can exercise reproductive autonomy, which obviously in too many states they can't. And so being frustrated with the individualized rhetoric that I've been seeing all of my life doing this work, I became really thirsty for another philosophical underpinning for how we needed to describe in human rights terms our sense of interdependence with each other, our interconnectedness with each other, and how people should have the same universal human rights no matter where they're born, what they're born, what their religion is, what their race, their age, or whatever is, their abilities or anything. And so I was really intrigued in the height of the anti-apartheid movement 
to hear people from South Africa talk about Ubuntu as a philosophy, because that's a social philosophy based on human interdependence and human interconnectedness, summarized by the state statement, I am because we are. I cannot define myself outside of the context of the community in which I'm embedded and the relationships with that with which I am, you know, rewarded. As opposed to, you know, I think therefore I am the Cartesian model, where one is an autonomous thinker, apparently adrift and unaffected by what else goes on around you. And so reproductive justice resonates with the Mbutu philosophy because it's our, our ability to care about each other's human rights that makes our human rights stronger. It's not just me for myself. And in, Juda in Judaism, they have a wonderful way of saying it that Tina's probably familiar with as a religious scholar. I didn't learn of this until one of my mentors, Shulamit Koenig, told me about it. And she said, in Judaism, we have a saying that my neighbor's material needs are my spiritual needs. And I can't be right with God if I'm not right with my community. And so you don't get to set up an individualistic relationship with God. God is going to judge you by your relationship with the other people in your community. And I love that as a statement of reproductive justice, because it is a testament by how deeply we care for others and we give, we, we, we offer a testament to our own integrity by how well we care for ourselves and others in relationship to each other. And so that provides a very sturdy foundation for reproductive justice because it's very clear that if they can violate the reproductive human rights of the women who are most vulnerable, and not only women, but people capable of being pregnant, then they will violate the human rights of even the most privileged as well, as we are seeing with the Dobbs decision. And so we have to transition not only beyond the limits of the US Constitution, but beyond the limits of this individualistic uh, philosophy in order to achieve full reproductive justice and full human rights, which is why when we conceptualize reproductive justice, we wanted to base it on the human rights foundation as opposed to a constitutional. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Loretta, I want to build on something Lucia already asked, which is, this, the human rights framework uh, for um, reproductive justice, uh, how does that look in your classroom? How do you uh, meet students at, at those intersections, especially post-Dobbs and post-Roe and, you know, the, the, the craziness, the state by state happening uh, in the United States right now? Well, the two classes that I teach at Smith College are called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump and Reproductive Justice Colloquium. And both of those I do with the political purpose in mind. I am not shy. I'm not trying to be apolitical in the classroom. I'm 
orienting students at the first day of class, then I'm teaching y'all how to become full members of the human rights movement, because that's what I've dedicated my life to. And so pedagogically, I have to treat the students as if they're co-learners with me. I use a Friarian-based approach because the students walk into the classroom full of their own experiences and their own experience with oppressions and advantages and disadvantages. And those are the platform on which any pedagogical approach must build, that they already know what, when life feels unfair or when life feels just, what when they know that they've been mistreated or when they know that they've received an advantage. And so you, when you teach by building on people's lived experiences, you provide a much more secure foundation for the new information that you're adding to their known experiences as opposed to teaching it in a more remote way. And so the whole, my whole pedagogical approach is about teaching you to be a better person, a deeper thinker. One of the earliest things I tell the students is don't trust me. I want you to become the best skeptic in the world so that you can make up your own mind about what is true, what is not, what works for you, what corresponds to what you've been through. But also speaking of what you've been through, what you've been through is not a resume. <laughs> it's just what you've been through. You gotta actually add some learning to that. <laughs> and so I teach them the value of book knowledge that can be married to what they've been through, not discounting what they've been through, but not also valorizing what they've been through because it ain't just enough to have been through stuff. Every person in the world has suffered from neoliberal capitalism. That doesn't make you unique. <laughs> you know, so, you know let's, let's see how we can create a healthy marriage between book knowledge and lived experiences so that you can make the most of who you can become. And so that's a pedagogical approach. Now, one of my pedagogical approaches that gets a lot of pushback is that I don't use trigger warnings at all. I offered my students in their first orientation class a choice. Do you want me to teach you the truth or protect you from it? <laughs> I can't do both at the same time. <laughs> now, I choose to err on teaching you the truth. And if you can't handle the truth, this is not the class for you. But I'd have to say, if you take a class called white supremacy and you're triggered by the term white supremacy, maybe you should take another class, okay? <laughs> it pretty much signals what it's going to be about. Um, another pedagogical approach is not to tell people what to think. I have pro-life people in my classes. I have pro-choice people in my classes. I have people who disdain both terms and want to call themselves reproductive justice activists and stuff like that. And again, another pedagogical approach is to provide them with the information and let them make up their minds for themselves where they're going to land on the political spectrum rather than dictate to them what they should, should believe or do. I mean, and that's informed by my experience as Sister Song. Because when Sister Song was founded in 1997, we were founded by both pro-choice and pro-life women of color. And so we knew at the outset 
that we needed to figure out how to be there for each other, even as the abortion debate landed us on different sides of the spectrum. And so I tend not to be the judge for my students. I let them judge for themselves who they are. No more will I tell a student that they're racist or non-racist or anti-racist. I'm like, I'm just gonna give you the information. You get to make up your mind where you fall on the spectrum by reading the materials, deciding for yourself. And so I see my students as adult learners and I treat them as such, even though they're much younger than me. Now, that means I'm very harsh though, because as an adult learner, I expect you to act like an adult learner. If you pay over $70,000 a year for an education and you choose not to avail yourself of this privilege, I'm not gonna mammy you through school. That just means you failed at adulting, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And you really need to more properly spend that money somewhere else rather than be in a college or a school and paying that kind of money to live up to someone else's expectation because you're wasting money and you're wasting people's time and perhaps not even fulfilling yourself if you're not in college because you want to be there and you want to learn all you can learn. And so I, I tend to err on the side of treating them as adults as opposed to treating them as children that I have to usher through the educational system. Now, obviously, as an advisor, I'm going to knock down every administrative bureaucratic hurdle in your way, because that ain't yours to solve. But in terms of making sure you do your readings, turning in your papers on time, attending classes, I don't handhold, because I insist on treating you like an adult. And trust me, in your working life, your supervisor is not going to call you to get you up out of bed in the morning to get you to work or tell you that, oh, I'm sorry, we gave you this deadline that caused you to have anxiety. We'll give you, a, we'll take away all deadlines for you. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And so I treat them as adults. And I think my job as a professor is help them learn about adulting, but through love, not through anger. That's the other thing. I teach through love and not anger. And so I don't think learning about anything should be hazing, should be punishing. And I think that's what turns a lot of people off of education because the professors are so busy showing off their knowledge and their credentials and their mastery of a subject that they think that they should brutalize the students the same way they got brutalized, getting their PhD or their master's or whatever. And that becomes a hazing process. If we can't make learning fun and engaging, we're doing something wrong. People should be excited about learning new stuff, not fearful every time they walk into a classroom. And I was a chemistry major when I first went to college. I was straight up in STEM, chemistry, physics. And I remember how, well, I was the only woman in chemistry and physics back in 1970. So they didn't even want me in those departments. But I remember how hostile my professors were to even having a woman in their classes. And I swore that if I ever became a teacher, I would never make a student feel that way. Would you be able to give an example of 
some of the kind or one or two examples of some of the kinds of assignments you've used in your classes? Um, how do you invite students into this kind of learning you're talking about? Well, one of my primary assignments are called reflection papers. And so I asked them to reflect on their lived experiences through the lens of what they've learned in my class about white supremacy or reproductive justice. So I literally tell them, I'm the only professor that allows you to write a paper where every paragraph can begin with I. <laughs> you know, because I really want to know how the materials you've encountered in my classroom has had an effect or reflects what you've been through in life. And so the reflection papers are my way of securing within the student their lived experiences married to the materials that I'm offering them. And so one of the questions might be, you've got a younger brother and you'd like to teach him, share this information you're learning in class with him. How would you go about teaching these concepts to your younger brother? So it gets them to rethinking about how would, it, how would I convey these conversations that people are generally uncomfortable having with young people, whether around sex or gender or race, and so that they can start thinking in very creative ways about breaking that conspiracy of silence when it comes to educating young people about these very important things they need to have knowledge of in their lives. Or I will pose another question about a free speech debate. Someone has invited somebody to the campus that you know is gonna cause harm to the student. How would you advise the college president to proceed? You know, what could you do beyond protest? Because obviously, you know, students can protest anytime they want to help the students in my campus protest the taste of chicken. So they protest everything. <laughs> but beyond protest, what, what, what creative strategy could you use about countering someone coming to campus who's going to say racist or anti-Semitic or you know, anti-gay stuff, you know, and the answers are generally in my materials, you know, you can prepare a dossier on them, you can do a briefing for the campus community on them. I mean, I use the material, the types of tactics that I use with my uh, anti-Klan work, and I bring those to the classrooms. How do you fight hate in a nonviolent way that doesn't end up making the, the, the speaker look like the victim? You know, that keeps the community engaged and intact. Because if you approach those kinds of things wrong, then the community may cleave over, well, I support free speech versus I support the victims when that is a false binary. Yeah, I want to get to those binaries. That's a good segue that and how you deconstruct, you know, pro-choice, pro-life. Um, and other things. Uh, so your new book coming out in 2023, uh, which is um, Calling in the Calling Out Culture. 
And I know you spoke at Agnes Scott about this and you, you have a Ted talk and many other things about it. Um, but if you could talk about how you teach calling in the calling out and, and um, getting us beyond the binary that uh, blocks our movement toward any kind of justice. Well, first I start defining terms for people because a calling out is publicly shaming somebody for something you think they've done wrong for which you think they need to be held accountable. And the fact that you've chosen to do it publicly means that you're making a, a, a presentation of it. You're making a demonstration of it. And you easily could call that person in privately. You could have spoken to them like, we don't use that word anymore. When you said this, it didn't land wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of other approaches. So the fact that you chose to do it publicly is what makes it a call out. Canceling is when you want them to be severely punished for what they've done. You want them to lose a job or a reputation or at least a platform. Now calling in is actually not the other end of a binary, it's part of a continuum because a calling in is a call out, but it's done with love and respect instead of anger, blaming and shaming. And so that's why it's not a binary because they're both ways to pursue accountability. But it's just the, the method that you choose to achieve accountability is likely to be more effective because when you call people in without humiliating them, they're more likely to listen to you than if you call them out and you've invited them to a fight. And then calling on, which is a concept created by Sonia Renee Taylor, is when you don't invest in anybody's emotional growth or you give them your time and attention, but you're demanding that they do better. You can call on people to be, become better human beings. You can ask a person to reconcile their inner good opinion of themselves with the words that come out of their mouth. I mean, really? If you think you're that good, why are you saying those kinds of things about other people? That's a calling on strategy. And then, of course, we should be all able to call it off when we're having unproductive conversations with people who are operating in bad faith. So that means we have to do better threat assessment to understand when is this conversation worth pursuing? Or when do I need to call it off even temporarily or permanently? And so calling in the calling out culture is about teaching people which strategy to use at which time, how to determine who's actually making a threat against you versus someone who just has poor word choice so that you don't make enemies out of allies just because they don't know the latest lexicon, that they don't know the woke language and stuff like that, but also holding the people operating in bad faith truly accountable for their misuse of the word cancel culture when they're trying to claim to be victims when in fact they're going around victimizing everybody else because they're the powerful who are used to punching down and not having the people they previously punched on punching back. And so it's about making a clear cut analysis of what the call out culture is doing to those in the human rights movement while offering a very sharp critique of how it's being weaponized by the right wing in an anti-human rights movement. So I try in my book to carefully avoid that false equivalent that you hear too many right. Well, the left does it and the right do it. But no, I don't buy that. You know, there is one group of people who are actively destruct, 
uh, deconstructing our democracy and destroying civil society. You know, we're complaining about stuff in the left, but we're not trying to destroy the damn society in which, you know, we can have these conversations. One is an eliminationist group. And so because I come from an anti-fascist background, I am never, ever going to let fascists off the hook around calling for civility with them because I'm not trying to be civil to fascists. I'm trying to overpower them and get them out of the positions where they can do harm to people. I feel like that's such an important distinction to make. And, you know, teaching out of college just a few hours, a couple of hours up the road from you, um, I feel so, um, like, one of the things that I, I really, I think, and colleagues and student colleagues, faculty colleagues, staff colleagues are often, like, trying to think through with each other is this distinction between, um, like, oh, like, you should have compassion for, or you should engage, or, like, think differently about tactics other than shouting somebody down, um, because we like that, that person, like, it becomes very focused on, like, the individual who is, like, seen as the enemy, rather than what does this do to the community, and what's the long-term tactic of this that will either enable or undermine um, longer term kinds of solidarity um, and building work. Um, and I really appreciate like the way that you're, the way that you're, um, you're drawing a distinction. I feel like, I don't know if you've gotten sort of this answer. One of the answers that to, or was replies to that, that I have, I, I often hear is, well, that's not my work to do. Um, like, why should I with X identity need to invest in educating this person or giving this person the, this idea or movement the time of day. Um, and I'm curious how you respond to that, if indeed you have like kind of heard that line um, within the left about it's not my it's not my labor or whose responsibility is it and sort of thinking through that that question with with your students or with your colleagues. Well, nobody has any obligation to help somebody else grow. That should be a choice, because if it's not a choice, you're going to do it badly anyway. If you're still bleeding from the wounds of oppression, then all you're going to do is bleed all over the other person, whether you're calling them in or out, and that ain't going to help. <laughs> and so if you're not in a sufficiently healed enough space to be able to build a container for entertaining opinions different from your own, then walk away, call it off, because you're not at that time and space to do it. And that's okay. You have no obligation to do it in the first place. So that's the advice I would offer. Let people be okay with not wanting to see to somebody else's growth. But there are some of us I just heard somebody outside my door. I guess my doorbell's gonna ring in a minute. But there are some of us who are in that space where we can see to somebody else's growth and we do it with joy. I love teaching white people about white supremacy. I call myself the white girl whisperer for that because I consider myself far sufficiently along the journey to understand how to make sure that I offer love and respect to the white people fighting white supremacy so that they don't become recruits to the other side. I see no benefit 
and strengthening my enemy by not my neglect of the people who could be on my side. Matter of fact, I have a conversation with young people all the time because they always want to use the word performative activism. I know you've heard it. <laughs> they want to say it all the time as accusations against each other. And I tell them like the example of the Black Lives Matter sign. Oh, it's just performative activism. And I said, you need to get over yourself because just by putting that sign up, whether it's on their website, on their front yard, or you know, hate has no place here sign or whatever, just by putting that sign up, they've already told you the number one thing you need to know about them. They're not on the other side. There's never been a white supremacist that's put out a hate has no home here sign. There's never been a white supremacist that put up a Black Lives Matter sign <laughs> or, you know, no human being is a legal sign. <laughs> so at worst, the people with those signs are your allies you just haven't figured out how to work with yet. That's the worst they could be. And yet you're treating them like they're the enemy because you've made a snap judgment without even considering, is that all they are capable of doing? You don't know anything about them, but you made a snap judgment calling them performative. Because the problem with the call out woke culture is that we're hypercritical and criticizing other people's social justice activism without criticizing our own. I, in my gender studies classes or any class, like I try to do this a lot, but like being like, well, okay, like what does Judith Butler say about performativity? Just like every iterative action is reshaping the world. So like, what is not a performative action? Like stop saying it, like the, it, performances do something and I'm performing right now. Um, well, that's just it, that there's this false perception that the more cynical you sound, the, hip, the wiser you sound. And, and I keep telling them, the, the more you think you're in a woke competition, all you're proving to an experienced activist like me is how much growth you still need to do. You're displaying immaturity, not sophistication. Well, one of the things I put in my introduction is the, the I think it was on the MacArthur uh, Fellow site that you have a sign on Did your- Did they ask you to write a recommendation for me and they didn't tell me? No, they didn't. I wish oh, I could. I have a couple of friends who said I was asked to write a recommendation and I couldn't tell you. So that's no, what- Darn, I wish I could have. Um, no, you need to, why didn't these friends spill the beans on? I know. <laughs> that's, keep, that's keeping a secret. Mm. Um, and so, but you have a sign on your door according to their website that says- uh, we were made for these times. And that seems to be a motto you take to your classes, treating students as um, as adults and uh, asking them with, with love and hope and joy to and resilience and other things to join you in the journey and the justice journey. So where now with these midterm elections, um, you know, students can often uh, be, you know, kind of in um, despair, uh, especially in the state of Georgia right now, uh, if you're following the elections here. Uh, how, do, how do you- I just came from Georgia voting. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, thank you for voting in, our, in your home state. 
uh, how do you guide, navigate, walk with your students through these times? Well, there's a couple of things that I tell the students. Oh, let me see. Let me put out all my little cliches. <laughs> First of all, I've always been told to stop, to stop assuming that you're the entire chain of freedom, that victory rests on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. Because you're not the entire chain of freedom. The entire the chain of freedom extends backwards towards your ancestors and forward towards your descendants. And so your task is to make sure that the chain doesn't break at your link. <clears throat> That's all you have to worry about, your link. And so if you can be the strongest link, you can be in the chain of freedom, that kind of reduces the magnitude of the task for me. And I hope that works for the students as well. The second thing is that you're not in charge of the timeline of human change. I've grown up, like this Thursday, I'll be at the 50th anniversary of the DC Rape Crisis Center. When the Rape Crisis Center was founded in 1972, we fully expected after 50 years, violence against women would end. <laughs> ah, guess what? <laughs> it ain't over. And as a matter of fact, Toronto Burke's gonna be there with us talking about the Me Too movement. And so we're never in charge of the timeline because changing human hearts is such long-term work. It'd be easier to teach people to fly than to think, get them to open up their minds if they decide they are, it's more profitable to keep their minds closed and stuff. And so there's the second thing. But the third thing is probably my most important. And that is if you're not having fun doing human rights work, you're doing something wrong because you're working on the side of truth, freedom, history, and time. You got all of that on your side. And so if you're not having fun, check out what, how you're doing the work, how you're approaching the work. Because truth, freedom, history, time, and evidence, they're against our opponents, not us. And so said another way, make sure you party as hard as you work. Have that consciousness toggle switch available so you can turn the consciousness off when it's time to watch Twilight without a feminist analysis so that you can just enjoy Jacob, Bella, and Edward, you know, um, have as many people in your life who aren't political as are political so that you can keep some balance and how most of humanity lives without a critical feminist lens to see the world and stuff. But if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. Leonard Zeskin used to tell me, he was our research director at CDR, he told me once to lighten up because we'd come from Blakely, Georgia, where a five-year-old black kid had died in a house fire when the fire department was one block from his house, but it was being run by the Ku Klux Klan. And the fire chief called it neighborhood beautification in a hot mic one day. And so I was so depressed coming back from Blakely. And then I said, Loretta, you need to lighten up. You're taking this work entirely too seriously. He said, fighting Nazis should be fun. It's being a Nazi that sucks. <laughs> and I've taken that to heart. 
So I tell it to my students. Wow. Well, I feel like this is a perfect moment to ask what uh, what we are reading, listening to, watching, whether it is in the critical feminist analysis lane or the strategic bracketing um, lane. We're also recording this on Halloween, so I invite anyone to share um, what they are being for Halloween, um, if anything, uh, or if they have plans, party hard. Uh, yeah, so Loretta, tell us what you, you have, I, what what is what is bringing you life right now in the world of things to read watch listen to consume well I'm a tennis junkie and anybody who knows me knows that about me that I would go watch monkeys play pickleball if that's all entertainment I could get because I love tennis and so the women's the WTA finals are coming up in Fort Worth Texas and I just love this up and coming crop of young stars like Coco Koff and Anstia Buer, who's the first uh, player from Tunisia. And I mean, I just love watching them. And particularly since I'm mourning that I never got to see Serena play live before she retired. And so she was on my bucket list and I had to scratch it off. And so I distract myself by playing tennis number one. But another thing I just finished doing in Atlanta was competing in a pinochle tournament. I'm a competitive pinochle tournament. Pinochle is like a card game, like bridge on steroids. And I just competed in a huge pinochle tournament in Atlanta. I did not place in the top 10 places because I'm not that good. But I won, I won over $100 in prize money. So I, I feel pretty good that I at least walked away earning bas half of my entry feedback. <laughs> that's amazing. Tina? Nice. Oh, that's hard to top. Um, <laughs> I am not really partying hard, but every week I look forward to, and I've mentioned this before, something I watch. It's season two of Abbott Elementary. I am really into it. I have to watch each episode twice to catch every nuance and I had uh, I have a former student who teaches um, in an urban school in Baltimore who um, texted me that you know she watched it it was funny but it was also really painful because of the the nuances in that show are really kind of spot on but um, yeah that's my uh, es escape but it also uh, gives me a lot of um, insight and and it's good to have a sense of humor about the system and the systems that we all work and engage in that are always fun <laughs> but uh they they find a way to to make it fun okay lucia Okay, I also finally took your advice and watched Abbott Elementary, which uh, I have appreciated. Um, you know, every other time we ask this question, I say something about basketball, and we've been in the very hard year or hard years. It's felt mm -hmm. like years, months between the end of WNBA season and the start of NCAA women's basketball season. But that 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 period is ending this week, so um, I'm excited to watch the Tennessee Vols. Uh, let's see. I have the thing that gave me 
weird joy this weekend was that, so, well, this was not really that joyful. I was at a debate tournament at West Point, the US Military Academy. And so I was like, you know, kind of having the cognitive dissonance of being at West Point, which is frankly, and it's like this beautiful place on the Hudson. It's like this armored, like all the, like these armored castles with turrets to like shoot people out of. Um, and like the outside of some of the walls are like climbing walls. You have to go through layers of security. So one day I was like getting away from the debate tournament that I was judging and it was like all inside. You couldn't leave the building without getting locked out. So like everybody had been inside in this windowless building all day. And I was like, I have to get out of here. I'll figure out how to get back in. So I went on this walk to like learn about like, okay, like what is the, what is the US military academy? And I saw many things, including people having like shooting competitions and there are like beat Navy things that are everywhere. But I also, there's like the West Point Club for I guess alums or like rich generals or whatever who come in and they have a rotating list of inter rotating international favorites on like Mondays, Thursdays and Fridays. That's their fancy food. And I would like you all to both guess what the seven international favorites being served at the West Point Club are. I love guessing games. <laughs> Vietnamese food. Any place we've colonized. Vietnamese That's food. what I was thinking. I was like, you know, Puerto Rican, Iraqi, um, Nicaragua. I mean, no. The, the international favorites are, in this order, Asian. Oh. Texan. Texan is considered international. <laughs> okay. It gets better. Polish. Italian. Mexican. New York Deli. <laughs> and pasta. <laughs> Which is separate from Italian. Um, anyway. So I'm enjoying that. It's also Halloween. I'm blueberries for Sal. And my dog is the bear from that children's book. Oh, fabulous. Well, Loretta Ross, this has been such a joy. You have brought us such insight and um, great things to for our own teaching. And we are glad to be able to share these with our listeners. So um, thank you, Loretta Ross, for being with us today. What shall I do? I wish I knew. Yes, I do. 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 Whirling dervish, prowling phantom planet, surface trying to avoid the nervous. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Loretta Ross. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguin. Our outro music is by Acrasis. It's entitled Chet Baker Sings from the God is My Autopilot CD, and it features Max Bowen, raps guitar, and Mark McKee beats and trumpet. A Crisis's music is available on bandcamp.com. After nearly six years of running, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast is a mostly self-funded operation. 
We've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com. And thank you for listening. The difference between prophetic and pathetic is only a few letters. Shall I do? I wish I.